welcome to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast with your hosts Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. The ultimate insider's guide from signing day to the national championship game and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast. Oh yes, we are back here and the theme preview episodes continue. If you loved the quarterback episode, well then, you know what? I'm, I'm 100% positive, money back guaranteed. You are going to love what we've got for you today. It is the trenches episode. We are talking about offensive line. We are talking about defensive line. We've got Cole Kubelik uh, just dropping gems here in just a little bit. Barton, I, I know you were a, you were a defensive back uh, and I... I never had the size or the frame to really uh, put my hands in the dirt. So I'm, I am excited because I have loved the, the, the hog mollies in the trenches from afar, and I'm excited to dig into them. Yeah, man, this is um, – we, we have recorded it, and it was an awesome interview. I really enjoyed it. Um, you're right. I was, a, I was a pretty boy defensive back. I remember the first time I came out for football in seventh grade, they called up who wants to play defensive? And I thought they were going to say defensive back. They said defensive end. And I rolled up there and just got the snot knocked out of me. And I was like, that's enough of that. Okay. I'll stay on the back end. <laughs> <laughs> and it was that way forever. But, uh, but yeah, this was, this is a fun, this is a fun talk. I really enjoyed it. We'll have to get Cole back during the season as well. Cause the trenches don't get in, don't get uh, a lot of love. You know, we were just filling out our, our all American ballot and, Barton, I would guess that you have a little bit of an advantage from uh, scouting these guys and ranking these guys as they're as they're coming up through the recruiting process, coming out of high school, and even you know catching buzz and following on them early on in camp. You know what's what is some of the ways that you you know as as we are asked to be experts and analysts for college football, what are some of the things that you look for uh, in terms of trying to to judge offensive and defensive linemen? Well, I think defensive line is, is different. I, I think I can. I feel pretty confident in my ability to identify and and Agree. track yeah. who the who the elite defensive linemen are. But offensive line, like I'll admit, like it's a for me. Look, there are some moments and some times when I've I, I try to really pay attention to offensive line or or, or certain players or certain players will flash to me. Or but the reality is, if I'm like picking an all American team, it's I'm. It's an educated guess, and I try to educate myself in making those guesses by paying attention to what guys like Cole Kublik are saying, guys like Aaron Taylor are saying, because those guys are studying the position, and you can't – like, I don't care who you are. I, I don't care if you're a you know 30-year veteran offensive line coach. Unless you're actually watching the position, It's that's just not – that's just not a spot where you can just wing it and just say, oh, yeah, that guy looked good, that guy looked good, they're all Americans. I mean, I think you really have to put the time in. And so that's that's part of the reason why I think it's good to kind of get Cole on to just educate us because he, he puts the time in. He watches the tape. He, he studies it. And so um, that's the only way you really know who the good ones are on, on offensive line. Yeah, I don't have the eye that's going to be able to watch and immediately start to recognize but i think that in through effort through training through help through you know lessons from former players and from coaches i I think i've gotten myself to the point where like you said if if someone tells me like oh watch 65 
and I make a concerted effort to watch 65, then I can recognize, I can say, oh, I can recognize that this player is much better than everyone else on that line or that that this player is special or that he has dominated all of his one-on-one battles. But naturally my eye, like, you know, what's the old, uh, the Pat Kerwin book, take your, take your eye off the ball. Like it's like, I, I still have a lot of the, just, just follow the ball with my eyes. Well, and, and like I still, you know, the, the Notre Dame Georgia game last year, you know, uh, Mike McGlinchey got beat to end the game by Davin Bellamy and it, it looked, it didn't look good. Um, it was, it was a big sack and you know, as a, as a as a person that's not studying and watching it play in play out you look at that and that's sort of this the the seared image in your mind of that game you're like well Mike McGlinchey may be a little overrated like coming out of that game that's how but you know I remember seeing Cole tweet about that or or write about that and saying like that was basically like he had like two bad reps and the rest of the game he was dominant and so again it's about it's it's about putting in the effort to really have the full grasp on what's going on on the offensive front. All right, we're going to have some uh, offensive lines, some some trenches-themed camp buzz coming up in a little bit. Want to hit on a couple of uh, news and notes. Uh, we've got a thinning quarterback room at LSU with the arrival of Joe Burrow. Uh, now we have a leaving LSU, redshirt freshman quarterback Lowell Narcisse, um, and... We also have McMillan is leaving, right? Justin McMillan. Yep. Justin McMillan. The neither of these players, I felt like I've gotten a chance to see at the the college level, or really, you know, last year, you know, we were talking about Miles Brennan, and then now with Joe Burrow, it doesn't seem like it's a secret that Joe Burrow's probably that Joe Burrow is going to be the starting quarterback for LSU this year. What do you do? You take any um, any big takeaways from what they're losing with Narcisse and McMillan leaving at LSU? Well, McMillan's just a depth guy. I mean, there's been times when he's been in the mix for the starting job, but that's that's just a depth loss there. With Narcisse, he's a redshirt freshman. He's a really athletic kid, and when Ed Ogeron took over the job, like he it, that was important for him to land Loyal Narcisse because he wanted more athletic quarterbacks, uh, and. So I like while he was never going to win this starting job, it wouldn't have surprised me if there was some sort of a a package in place for Loyal Narcisse this fall because of that athleticism. Um, but the reality is, he's he, he's a guy that needs reps, needs development as a passer, and he's he was clearly relegated to third string at best in that race, and so. I get why he's leaving. It makes plenty of sense why he's leaving, and that quarterback room now is just Miles Brennan and, and Joe Burrow, and I think Joe Burrow is going to be the starter. But um, but now it's very thin. There's no question, um, and they didn't bring in a quarterback this past class, so they've got uh, you know they've got some they got some work to do. A big bet. So is that like from your perspective when you see this? Um, you like. I am looking at LSU in 2018, and I'm thinking between Joe Burrow and Miles Brennan. I mean, you would never hope or think that disaster would happen from an injury perspective at the quarterback position. But I think with the with those two players, they have enough to hit their win total mark. Those were going to be the those were going to be the first to start the the one and two, in some combination. Likely Burrow as the as the one, 
regardless. So nothing really changes in For terms this of what year. we expect to see on the field this year. And even next year, both those guys are probably going to be there next year. They got a quarterback committed in the 2019 class. So that gives them a third scholarship quarterback for next year. But you're looking so, at the long game. You're looking at this like when you say they have some work to do, that is a statement like if they just, don't go out and start recruiting the quarterback position and get some get something lined up, then all of a sudden we're going to be dealing with a year where they have to go right back to the transfer market. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, Burrow's gone next, next year's Burrow's last year, assuming he doesn't go pro this year. I mean, he could. He could kill it this year and go go pro. Um and then, you know, what if Miles Brennan transfers? Miles Brennan is a, a, is a thinner guy. Like, what if he gets hurt? Um, and so even three quarterbacks on, in a college program on scholarship, that's, that's not ideal. I think you'd like to have at least four. So I just think that, yes, like they're, they're just – it's a thin quarterback room, that, and that's not, that's not what you want. But, but in terms of this year, they're, they're fully capable to win every game. Uh, some more attrition this time on uh, the injury side of things. 24-7 Sports uh, first reported that TCU defensive tackle Ross Blacklock has suffered a season-ending Achilles injury. I hate uh, seeing those Achilles injuries, especially at this time of year. He was a stellar, stellar freshman last year. Um, you know, I think he was the – didn't he get conference honors, I think? Co-freshman player of the year. Yeah, I mean, just yeah. one, one of the best young players in all of the Big 12, if not the best. A key part of that defensive line. Uh, I know that you've been you've been big on TCU and particularly TCU's defense. What's your what's your adjustment here when looking at the Horn Frogs? Yeah, I think this is kind of a big deal because I do think that the strength of this team is their defensive front, and I think Ross Blacklock's a big part of that. And particularly because like this is a unique body for them, Wisconsin or uh, TCU doesn't trot out a bunch of 330 pound defensive tackles, and that's that's what Ross Blacklock is. And so, I think his departure is is more impactful than a lot of guys they could have lost on, on their starting defense just because of the unique body and and unique physicality that he brings to that to the middle of that front. So this worries me a little bit. And then I think that means that look at the defense is still going to be good. It doesn't, things don't fall apart, but I, I think it does. You start to sort of shift the balance a little bit. There's the weight of, of responsibility a little bit over to the offense and, and say, okay, guys like Sean Robinson, you hope you're ready. Jalen Rager, you know, I hope you're ready. Cause it's, you know, you guys need to pick up the slack just a little bit. Because Ross Blacklock's a big part of that defense. Yeah, um, Ben Bonogo, Bonogu. Yeah, yeah. That's that that's the yeah, stud, that's, right? That's the dude. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's the dude on that TCU uh, defensive front. Uh, all right, you ready to uh, to buzz it up, trenches style? Trenches buzz. Let's do it. That are making a buzz. Camp, camp buzz. Camp, camp buzz. Camp, camp buzz. Talking about players that are buzzing. All right. This is a trenches edition of Camp Buzz. Nothing outside the line of scrimmage is getting mentioned. And we will start, uh, let's go SEC. Uh, Texas A&M, they landed a kid named Bobby Brown late in the process 
who was committed to Alabama, but he was an in-state guy. And Bobby Brown is running with the twos and is going to be an impact guy at defensive line. And it looks like a defensive end. And he's really – which is interesting because he's a, he's a bigger-bodied kid but and could probably play defensive tackle for a lot of teams. But it appears he's going to be more of an edge guy for them. And that's and, – and look, Cole's going to talk about it here in a minute. But, I mean, that's already a pretty good defensive front for Texas A&M. And if they're getting some help from some young guys – I think that that could be. I think. I mean, look. That's this is this is a team that's going to keep on surprising people with how good they are. And and I think Bobby Brown, if he makes an impact like it seems like he will, that's that's meaningful. That's significant. So you're saying that he's got he's bringing a uh, a new addition to Texas A and M. I wonder. I wonder what Bobby Brown pun <laughs> was going to come from that uh from that camp buzz but yes i am saying that Uh, all right see this is where we come back to the conversation about texas a&m a place where we land often which is it is difficult to move texas a&m above auburn like as as we constantly are shifting uh the pecking order you know in our minds you know stock up stock down it is it is difficult to get texas a&m up to auburn alabama but even when there has been disappointing seasons or you felt like the Aggies have underperformed the talent level on that team is still strong and has been strong. Yeah. I feel like A&M has been overlooked in a lot of ways just, and, and I know that there's going to be a, an adjustment period and a transition period, but yeah, I do think they're more talented than people are giving them credit for. And they're, they are very capable. And so like, when I look at even games like Clemson heading to College Station, that's a like that's a scary matchup, right? Oh, dude, I mean, that's, Texas A&M that, can win that game. Texas yeah, A&M can absolutely win can win that game. Yeah, so I just I do think people are sleeping on A&M to be a spoiler this year. Not saying they're going to win or, or contend for the West, but they're they probably are the type of team that can mess around and beat anybody they play, including the big dogs like Alabama and Clemson. Right. And, you know, in like, haven't we had a couple of these Texas A&M Alabama games in the last couple of years where Texas A&M has even carried a lead into the second or third quarter? It just, it never felt like Texas A&M was going to win. You just always were like, well, at some point Alabama is going to start making first downs and then you're in trouble. Well, yeah, and that was a little bit of like, I don't know. I feel like there's a little bit of things were going to fall apart at some point. Um, and I, I, with Kevin Sumlin and with Jimbo Fisher, I, I wonder if they're hanging around late in the third quarter. If you're like, um, Jimbo's going to figure out a way to win this. Like, I don't know. I, I, I just think this team is scarier than people are, are, are recognizing. Watch out. Bobby Brown at Texas A&M. Players that are making a buzz. Camp, camp buzz. Camp, camp buzz. Camp, camp buzz. Talking about players that are buzzing. At Michigan, as good as that defensive front is, you know you're a dude if you're getting looks and, and running meaningful burn in that group. And that's what's happening with Aiden Hutchinson, true freshman top player out of Michigan, uh, 
guy I saw at the Army All-American Bowl who just balled out that week. He's big. He's like 6'6", 250. And I think he's going to find a way to get on the field at Michigan this fall, even as good as that defensive front is. And and there's some guys that are going to take a step forward, guys like Aubrey Solomon um, who are going to fill in for the Mo Hurst departure. And there's a lot of guys already coming back. It's not like they need the help. Right. Uh, but I think Aiden Hutchinson just adds another big body, another long body in that defensive front, and and he's got some good versatility as well. I just think they're stacking up talent back there, and I don't think you're going to – like this defensive line, I think, because of a guy like him, because a guy like Aubrey Solomon is, 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 is poised to take a step forward, it's going to be and, – and because, of course, they still have Chase Winovich and, and Rashawn Gary back and guys like that. It's going to be a better group even than last year, I think. Does it seem like that we might have uh, – because I know like Don Brown would love to have just six or like to, to roll six deep on that defensive line. Oh, like, yeah. Like, like it, we might not have any one of those individuals putting together uh, – I mean, granted, Chase Winovich did, had a – absurd tackle for loss count last year. But I was wonder I was just wondering out loud as you were, you know, discussing the depth there that maybe there's not one player who uh puts together an, an incredible an, an incredible stat line, but where we're looking at Michigan's defensive line and there's just the, there's just not really a weak spot at most points during the game. That's sort of what it felt like last year at that defensive front. I, I think this year I wonder if we see I can't remember if I've talked about this with you here, but I, I wonder if we see that breakthrough dominant Rashawn Gary performance where he becomes that, you know, who's better between him or Nick Bosa, who's better him or Ed Oliver. Like that, I wonder if this is the year he becomes that guy. Um, Cause I think there's that potential here for him to be that sort of a bell cow on this defensive front. God. He's a uh, him and him and Mo Hurst last year was fun. I, I, I'd forgot it, it's, I'm starting to warm myself up with uh, some some of the like the B and C storylines, and even like the ones that just just picking up all my loose ends. Like you just know it's August 16th when you're starting to remember how great it is to see you know 325 pounds just out and moving in the open field. Did you? What was? Uh, I, I feel like Rashawn Gary's like test spring testing results. I'm trying to see if I can dig him up here while we're while we're talking, but he he put together some just ridiculous times. I think he was a four five seven forty, yeah, four five seven forty at two hundred eighty plus pounds. He broad jumped nine six. Um, I mean he he's a like if you if he's on your freak list, I think he was. Speaking of, I mean Bruce Feldman had freak list. He was on that freak list. He he's. He, he is an elite athlete at that size. I think we're going to see that a little bit more emphatically this year. He's uh Rashawn Gary is like the, the player who is going to end up making tackles on a jailbreak on a jailbreak screen from the other side of the field. That's where he really flashes. Like his motor and pursuit, is silly. Yeah. Like that dude, yeah, he's making plays on the sideline regularly. Yeah, that's that's what I'm standing up just like, "Yes!" <laughs> All right, one more buzz. Multiple yeah, more we'll buzzes. Go, we'll go two more buzzes. Two more buzzes. Well, 
false false start on the buzz. Players that are making a buzz. Camp, camp, buzz. Camp, camp, buzz. Camp, camp, buzz. Talking about players that are buzzing. All right, this will be the last buzz because we got. I want to get it. I want to get to to Cole. Um, didn't didn't see a. There hadn't been a ton of true freshmen popping up at offensive line yet. Last year was different. I feel like for whatever reason, there was just a bunch of freshman offensive linemen. One of the guys that popped up last year was Makai Becton at Louisville, and I bring him up because if you are and we have. I think both talked about how we're sort of selling our Louisville stock. Right. And I think the one, if you are looking for, you know, the a, a positive lean on Louisville, if you're looking for a silver lining or, or something to, to hang your hat on, Makai Becton is, is, he's like 6'7", 350 pounds, and he is as dominant as ever. He's taken that step forward as a dominant offensive tackle, he's sort of, he, you know, he look, it appears he is becoming that Orlando Brown presence for Louisville. And so the left side of their offensive line is going to be really good. And if, if Puma pass gets, I mean, if you remember like Lamar Jackson two years ago, you remember that 2016 season, they're a little bit better last year, but that, that Heisman season, the Louisville offensive line was horrible. Horrible. Yes. Remember how bad they were? Yes. And like if if now here we are a couple years down the road and Louisville's offensive line is pretty good, or at least they've got some really good pieces to it, you know, maybe that's enough to um to, to, to cushion the fall from from Lamar Jackson. But Makai Becton appears to be an absolute dude who's got big time NFL draft pick potential what's like where what's louisville's uh like selling point recruiting map like where's are they is petrino going still to florida like where where are they sort of pulling from right now yeah they do they they pull from florida um that's still a big a big piece of their recruiting base uh you know they they're they're they recruit midwest as well um they recruit kentucky you know they so but I think like their athletes are Florida guys, and Mackay Becton's a Florida guy, um, and so and Puma Pass is a Georgia guy. So I mean, they they're just sort of a regional program that that can't really, I mean, that has to have success in the state of of Florida, um, and and they have to a certain degree, right? For sure. But I mean, you know, like so here's their here is their Right guard, left guard, right tackle, left tackle. As far as I as, as, as I think was what we're projecting it at. Six three three sixteen. Okay, whatever. That's that's Cole Bentley, Kenny Thomas, six six three twenty two, and then here's the big like Lucas McNeil, six six three thirty, Mackay Becton, six seven three sixty. That's some beef there. <laughs> so. You know, we'll see if that works. But I, I, that's they have a chance to maybe pound some people, get physical. They, you know, we know they like them the, the way they the talent on the outside. But if they can lean on some people, wear some defensive lines out, you know, maybe that's going to help their run game as well. Mm, we'll see. All right, 
You ready for Cole? Let's bring him in. Let's do it. And now it's our privilege to welcome to the program Cole Kublik, ESPN. And Cole, uh, thank you so much for taking some time to join the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast. Uh, I hope that you are are willing to help us because you know Bart Barton was a defensive back and and, and I didn't I didn't quite uh, become educated in the ways of uh, the offensive and defensive line so are are you ready to help guide us through a full deep dive into college football between the, in the trenches for the 2018 season I hope so looking forward to it so um, and that's that's what I'm here to do is talk O line D line so let's do it well, let's get started just with I, – I, I think – I loved your NC State pick last year. I'm just going to say it because you it was a it was against the grain pick, but it was also a pick be, that you did based, I, I assume, kind of studying that defensive line and understanding how good that defensive line was. And, and sort of there were some clear reasons why the NC State pick makes sense for you. And, and I'm curious if this year, as you've sort of dug into – film study or whatever your process is, if there's a team that is emerged for you as someone where you're looking at either their offensive line or their defensive line and you're saying, you know, this team's a lot better than people realize. And this team, this 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 unit could take this squad a lot further than anybody's talking about. Are you are you finding a favorite somewhere out there like that? Uh, from a team perspective, yes. Because of their offensive line, no. What's funny is I think NC State's going to have uh, one of the better offensive lines in the ACC, uh, in uh, maybe one of the better in the country. Uh, the Dwayne Ledford does a really good job with that group. They've got almost everybody back. They're a physical group. They mix and match their run schemes. They can go heavy zone. They can run. They can throw gap scheme runs at you. Uh, they're solid in pass protection. Now their offense helps them. Um, you know, Eli Drinkwitz, the OC, is a guy that gets the ball out quick, run a lot of screens, um, and he'll run some crafty plays that will sort of help that group out. But from an O-line, D-line perspective, man, I, I haven't really seen – I really like Michigan, and their D-line's a big reason that, that I like them. Their front seven's a big reason that I, that I like Michigan, but their offensive line's actually a pretty big concern of mine. Uh, same thing with Auburn. I think Auburn has the best front seven in the SEC, one of the best in the country, but the offensive line is, is a major concern of mine. I think if there's an O-line that ends up surprising some people, um, I think Mississippi State could be one. I like Elton Jenkins a lot, a uh, really good football player. Deion Calhoun's a pretty good guard. Um, I think Kentucky has a really nice middle three of the offensive line. Uh, I think some people are sleeping on the Oklahoma offensive line, which – I believe absolutely should be mentioned in the same breath with Wisconsin and Georgia and teams like that. They, they are, they are not going to have a, a big drop off from an offensive line perspective. Orlando Brown was a good collegiate tackle, but he can, he can be replaced. And I think Bobby Taylor probably had a better season than he did last year and he'll slide over the left and their two guards, Ben Powers, Drew Samia are, are both really good football players. So the Oklahoma offensive line is going to be still one of the best in college football. They, they were one of the best last year, and I think they'll be one of the best this year. Uh, Georgia's probably the group that I think could go the furthest from beginning to end. Uh, I, th- I think Georgia has one of the better groups returning in college football, but they're still pretty young. Ben Cleveland's a guy that we only saw a little bit of late last year, and Andrew Thomas is a young man that, you know, the first I – I think Matt Sinscombe called me like week two or three, and he's like, He's like, Cole, have you seen this Andrew Thomas kid? I was like, not a lot. Let me let me go look at him. 
And I called him back. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I, I don't see it. He's not very impressive. He's falling on his face all the time. He's like, man, I've just, I've seen a lot of him. He's young. Give him some time. Sure enough, by the end of the year, you know, he, he came a long way. And I think he enters as one of the better tackles in the SEC this fall. And with Lamont Gallier back at center, that offensive line is going to be really good. I think they're the best offensive line in the SEC. If there's an entire group out there that I like that's not getting a lot of love, it's probably Missouri. I think mm. that offensive line is going to be really good. Uh, I, I think they they have been hampered by the way that they play. And then obviously their defense hadn't gotten a lot of stops the last few years, so people just don't – they flat out just don't pay attention to them. They haven't been a great team. I don't know if the defense is really going to catch up that much, but, you know, you see Durant, Paul Adams, uh, and even Trevor Wallace-Sims, that, that those guys can play. Uh, Kevin Pendleton's a big, physical sort of bulldozer of a guard, and I'm interested to see if they get a little bit of a better chance this year to, to when they slow things down, which I think they will at times, to sort of focus and, and re-energize and, and be a group that can sort of come at you from a north and south perspective. So, obviously, my focus is on the SEC. There, there are some other groups out there. I mean, Stanford's group's going to be really good, of yeah. course. They, they kind of always are. You don't really ever have to question that group. Um, you know, I, I, as far as teams are concerned, you know, West Virginia's a team that I really, really like. Um, I think the offensive line is going to be pretty good for the way they run their offense. They're about as physical as you can be. Um, but I just don't like the back end of their schedule. I mean, the last four games are just filthy for West yeah. Virginia. So I've got them, I've got them winning the big 12, but they'll probably drop one of the last four. And, uh, the only way I think they could get into the playoff is maybe lose the Oklahoma game and then get them again the next week and beat them in the, in the big, t- big 12 championship game. That feels like the bold prediction right there. I just, you, I've been, uh, it's you mentioned a lot about styles, Cole, and is is there any is there any keys or is it mostly just in a snap by snap film study looking at the technique with all the different styles that you have, you know, with a, a there's a West Virginia and an Oklahoma and you know both of those are different than what you were talking about with Wisconsin and Georgia. You know, what are is there is there something in the in the technique or, or what are you looking for that can identify a good offensive line group? Uh, or even good individual offensive linemen with so many different styles across college football. Yeah, Wisconsin and Stanford are kind of the outlier now. I mean, it's yep. LSU was hanging on by a thread. Alabama was hanging on by a thread. It's, it's sort of being very similar groups, kind of the same kind of group. Um, but yeah, they're, they're kind of the teams that still do not ultimately rely on spacing to be able to gain yards. And, and it's, I'll be honest with you guys, it makes the evaluation process very difficult. And I think Clemson is probably the perfect litmus test for that. Uh, I thought Crowder was really physical at guard last year, but he's the only guy that I saw as really kind of a an NFL-type player. Uh, Mitch Hyatt gets a lot of publicity, but you know I think Mitch Hyatt benefits greatly from the system that he plays in. I, I, my lasting memory of him is against Anthony Jennings in, in the college football playoff last year, and that didn't go very well for him. And I don't really view Anthony Jennings as an elite pass rusher. I think he's a great edge setter. I think he's a really good college football player, but you know he's not like a Tim Williams coming off the edge. Right. And I think that that Clemson offensive line they they execute what they're asked to do very well. Now, what they're asked to do does not bring a very high level of difficulty, if that makes any sense. Sure. You know what you see Wisconsin do, what you see Stanford do, what you see Georgia do, some of. 
there's a much higher level of difficulty with what they're asked to do. Texas A&M is going to get back to that at some point. I don't think they're ready for it this year, but you know, Jimbo and, and those guys are going to get back to being a little bit more of a north-south run team and go under center some and use a fullback and use a tight end. And that's something that, that there's going to be an adaptation process there to that. Oh, you know, Arkansas was doing it early under Brett. And then Brett sort of brings in Dan Enos and they have a complete identity crisis of they want to be smash mouth north and south, three yards in a cloud of dust, but they also want to be spread two thirds of the time or a quarter of the time. And you just kind of can't carry both of those mentalities. You, you have to sort of know who you are. And, and I think there are still spread teams that can hurt you with a downhill running game. I and mean, Auburn's a perfect example of that. You know, Oregon has been a perfect example of that over the last few years. It doesn't, feel like they're going north and south because of the way the alignment is and because of the bodies on the field, but they really do attack you right off tackle and a lot of the times between the tackles. So the evaluation process is difficult because you have to take what guys are being asked to do and grade them on that and not grade them against other guys. Like if I would have graded everybody against Quentin Nelson last year, everybody else would have been uh, a crummy offensive lineman because nobody else was on the level that he was on. And you only had two or three guys nationally that were even close to what he was doing. So I think you have to sort of take in mind the system that guys are operating in, what they're being asked to do, and then grade them on how they execute what they're being asked to do. So who's on that elite Quentin? Who's on that top tier for you going into 2018? Don't, don't say that name because it's not fair. <laughs> because there's only one guy in college football right now that's on that level. and There, there are no others. So... Um, I, I don't I don't like to make that comp because I don't think there's a comp. I think he's a generational guy. And is he we the best you've seen? In, is, probably a little bit. Is he the best you've seen? He's in, the best guy. He, he's the best I've graded since or like studied since Alan, Alan Fanica at, at LSU. He really is. I mean, yeah. it's, he's he's that scary good. I mean, it was it was fun to watch last year, last few years really. Okay, so what yeah. about the top tier? Not I'm not going to mention his name. I'm not going to do player comp. But if who is occupying that top tier for you, where you feel like there is a measure of space between you know that player or these few players and most of the other offensive linemen in college football? When we when we put together ability and athleticism and power and strength and frame and technique and probably a little bit of projection, I think Trey Smith at Tennessee is a notch ahead of everybody else in college football. And, and to say that after only his true freshman season is pretty scary. Now, I'm concerned about his growth because he didn't go through spring. Obviously, he had a physical ailment that didn't allow that. So I'm a little bit wary of where he's going to be at the beginning of the season, but I also know what kind of person he is and I know how he works, and I know how much football means to him. But I'm going to throw out a lot of other names on this podcast. None of them play the game the way that Trey Smith does, and that's what's most impressive about him is you don't see many guys with his skill set, number one, but then his skill set who understand how to play the game, number two, and the violent nature in which he plays it and the way he finishes and the way that he looks to punish his opponents, it's just a rare find. He has a chance to be a very, very special college football player. But there are some other guys that are, that are, that are really high end that I think can have great, finish up great collegiate careers and still have really good NFL careers. I mean, at, at tackle, I think Jonah Williams is next. Uh, he's more of a technician than he is a mauler, but just a really good football player, highly intelligent. You can tell that he understands angles. He understands footwork. He understands body control. He's played right. He's now played left. I expect him – not making a jump from one side or the other this year, 
to sort of have a little bit more growth from his sophomore year to his junior year than he did from his freshman year to his sophomore year. Because a lot of what we saw his freshman year was better than last year. Uh, but I understand the spot that he was put in, and I expect him to make that jump this year. I think Dalton Risner at Kansas State's a guy that I really like. Huge frame, monster frame, but a guy that gets after it, plays with some nasty, understands. He's a little bit of a backbender at times. Uh, but I think he's somebody who, by the end of the season, we'll be talking about him as a, a potential first-round offensive tackle. We mentioned Bobby Evans at Oklahoma, really, really good football player, understands the position, has a good enough frame, good feet, uh, plays with some nasty finishes, which was a problem for the guy that played opposite him last year. Um, also think Greg Little at Ole Miss has a ton of potential. We haven't seen all of his potential just yet, but he gives you flashes of some greatness. We talked about Andrew Thomas at Georgia, Trey Adams at Washington, He's a really good collegiate offensive lineman. I don't put him as high-end as a Jonah Williams or Trey Smith or Bobby Evans, but I think he's got a chance to be really good. Um, at guard, uh, I, we mentioned Drew Samia at, uh, at Oklahoma. I think he, he's one of those guys that you need to keep an eye on. Garrett Brumfield at LSU is really good. Being Cleveland at Georgia is going to kind of be in that Braden Smith mold at Auburn the last few years. Just a big, strong, low-percentage body fat kid that – they can get movement at the point of attack and not afraid to play a physical style of football. Um, at center, I think I, I talked about Lamont Galliard a little bit earlier at Georgia. And the thing about Lamont Galliard, too, I, I, I kind of just love his story. You know, he's a guy that his offensive line coach, Sam Pittman, told me that they, they stuck everybody else over there that they could to try to beat him out because they didn't think he was their best option. And he just, he just kept fighting people off and he kept scratching, he kept clawing, he kept battling. And now I think he's probably the best center returning in the SEC. Ross Pierce Baker may take that over by the end of the year, but we just we haven't seen a ton of Ross at center. We've seen a little bit of it, but just not a ton. So we don't know if he's that guy just yet. Um, I think you could probably take all the Wisconsin guys, and you're really not going to go wrong with any of them. I mean, Michael Dieter's fun to watch. Um, really good football player. I think uh, when you, when you look at at Ben Schwackel, uh, at, at guard, really good football player. David Edwards at the other tackle. I mean, Washington's got five who are probably going to play – or Wisconsin's got five that are probably going to play in the NFL. And that's kind of scary to think about. So uh, that's why they're the best group returning in college football, and, and that's why that offense is going to just continue to steamroll people on the ground with that group and an elite tailback. Uh, they're going to be fun to watch. I agree with you on Trey Smith and just that like I don't have to I don't have to dig into the film to for Trey Smith to pop and to flash. Like he, he's just that good. I'm curious from you like do you as from an offensive line analyst type of perspective, like does it take really studying all these offensive lines or or are you can you just see it better because you played it and because you've you focused on it for so long that if you watch a game, you can come away saying that kid's really good. That kid's really good. That kid's not, that kid's not like, I'm just curious what your process is to come up with, to sort of come up with these opinions. Well, my process is very random and I tell people this a lot. Um, I kind of have to get it in where I can fit it in now when it comes to film, because I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old and it just it's not as easy to just grind for hours and hours and hours like it was four or five years ago. But for me, I, I do think where the advantage comes in is that my eyes don't leave the line of scrimmage. Whatever I'm watching, if I'm watching NFL preseason 
if I'm watching a replay on the SEC network, if I'm studying a particular group, my eyes don't leave the line of scrimmage. And I feel like because I've put such an emphasis on it and I study it so much that the, the guys like me and Aaron Taylor and Jeff Schwartz, who, who really spend the majority of our time on this part of the position, Matt Stinchcomb, we spend so much time watching it, it is easier to evaluate it more quickly. So I think I feel like I can put on let's let's say Alex Leatherwood starts the season at right tackle for Alabama. Well, I feel like I could probably watch two series of his first three games and have a pretty good idea, maybe a better idea than most other people of what he's going to look like and what he's going to project out as as an offensive tackle in college, where most other people may need to study every snap, every game, multiple times, so on and so forth. And it's not that I don't still do that; I do. Uh, there are certain players, there are certain units that I still go back and spend a lot of time on and need to study. Like Michigan's one that's a big question mark for me right now. Auburn is one that's a big question mark for me right now. So I'm going back trying to find, you know, substitution time for some of these guys that are going to be starters this year and potentially project out, okay, I think they're going to be fine. I think Auburn's going to be good with Mark Harrell at guard. I've seen Mike Horton a little bit. I think he's going to be a pretty good player. Like, Ben Bredesen at Michigan, I think, has a chance to be a pretty good player. He started a lot last year, but I just need to see a little bit more of what's going to be next to him this year because I didn't see it a lot last year. So I do think that that process happens for guys that studied a lot a little bit more quickly, and that gives me a big advantage. And as far as my process goes, I mean, it's usually because of what I do during the week. Uh, it's I, I have to get Alabama and Auburn in on Sunday. I, I have to do that. And then I usually know who my next game the next week is going to be. So let's say I have Texas A&M and South Carolina. I'm going to start getting those teams in on Sunday as well. And then I usually will stick around for an hour or two after my radio show every day. Now, this was a lot easier last year. This was my first season doing 10 to 2. But last year I'm done at 10 a.m. So I can sit there till noon or 1 and get a lot done. I, don't, I won't have that advantage this year. So I may get some done in the morning. I may try to come in early, watch an hour of film, do the show, stay for an hour, watch an hour of film, and then usually every night, I mean, unless my wife and I are doing something out, every night in the fall, I'm going to get 30, 45 minutes, an hour, two hours in of films, whatever my my brain can withstand, I'm going to try to get that in. Planes are great because, uh, you know, layovers in airports are great because I can just dive in and not have to worry about it, not have to think about it. And then I usually try to get a little bit into my hotel room on Thursday night, Friday during the day, Friday night after my my team usually goes to dinner uh, for the game that we're going to have Saturday night. But Saturday, it's kind of good that I have the night game because I can watch I can watch the early games and usually about half of the afternoon. So I actually do watch some decent football on Saturday um, and, and then obviously try to catch up a little bit afterwards. That's awesome. I, I, I want to, we, we still got to get to some D line, but I, you mentioned these teams. So I want to follow up Michigan and Auburn. And, and I'm going to kind of describe who I am with these teams, like in, in terms of how I view them. So let's say hypothetically, and basically I'm describing me, you believe in Michigan, you believe in their defense. You believe in the quarterback position, whoever's going to be being approved. You believe in the outside guys, you believe in Jim Harbaugh getting over the hump eventually. Let's say you also believe in Auburn. You believe in the defensive line being that good and their defense being that good and, and the run game just going to be you know, going to be what Gus Malzahn always has it at. 
You believe in Jarrett Stidham taking the next step forward. And the question mark, obviously, on both those teams, the one big sort of X is offensive line. How close should that believer and all those other things be towards really feeling good about those teams? Because as you mentioned, offensive line is sort of what you're wondering about. Are you almost there with them? Are you? Do you? Do you need a lot more convincing? Like, where are you at with those two teams who are sort of that might be the only thing they're missing? No, it's a good point, and and I think uh, they there are different ways to view both for different reasons. We'll start with Michigan. So Michigan's offensive line is, is probably probably my only real concern for that football team. I think skill wise, receiver, running back, they're going to be fine. Uh, I think tight end, even losing Tyrone Wheatley, they're still going to be fine there. Defense, obviously going to be solid. That includes all three levels of the defense. Um, D-line with Rashawn Gary and company, going to be nice. Devin Bushley's the linebackers, most of the secondaries back. That was a really good group a season ago. And I, I just, I think Don Brown's a really, really underrated defensive coordinator. Uh, with Michigan, it kind of goes like this. They threw, I think, eight touchdown passes last year as a team. Not not one guy as a team. They had fewer touchdown passes did. That's disgusting. Now, with Jim Harbaugh, Pep Hamilton, and Jim McElwain all in-house, and now an athletic piece of the puzzle that they can fit in at quarterback, that opens them up to be very different offensively. And that, order, that opens them up to direct quarterback runs. That opens them up to quarterback reads, to read options, to zone read to more more movement of the pocket, things of that nature. So I don't – if it's going to happen, the way that I believe it has to happen is Michigan can't be in that triple I formation or 22 or 23 personnel, all these tight ends and H-backs and these extra running backs and jamming everybody. If your offensive line's not great, the, the last thing you want to do is jam more people close to the line of scrimmage and close to the football because you're only giving the defense to take advantage of where you're weak. This was something two years ago that I was really frustrated with Auburn. You know, they, they weren't great up front, and all of a sudden they're going with, like, two H-backs and an extra tight end. They're putting another offensive lineman in at tight end. I'm like, well, you're, you're not good up front anyway. Why would you want to attract more attention to right. where you're not good? You, no, one should, no one should want to attract – I mean, that, that'd be like me walking around with a belly shirt on. Like, I don't need to be showing my belly off to people. Like, that's a bad idea. Same. So why, why bring more attention to your flaws, so to speak? So, um, you know, I, I, it, it's just a bad idea. If Michigan can get away from that a little bit, now with an athletic piece of the puzzle that can make them a little more dynamic, and I believe in Shea Patterson, not just because of his skill set, but – I've seen what kind of a worker he is. I've seen how much football means to him. I do think that piece can be that important. And not so much from a Cam Newton at Auburn 2010 put the team on his back perspective, but what it can open up for a lot of guys. Like, here's the thing about that 2010 Auburn team. Like, this is where they would be different. Did you realize the 2010 Auburn offense does not have an NFL rush or reception outside of Cam Newton? Attempt. Yeah. There's not one rushing attempt or one NFL reception outside of Cam Newton from the 2010 Auburn offense. Now, Darvin Adams is having some success in the CFL, so whatever. But my point is that he didn't have a lot of guys around him helping. I don't think it has to be that way for Shea Patterson. He's got some guys around him who can help him. If they tinker enough with that offense, it could open, enough, open up enough to get them 21, 24 points a game, which with that defense should be enough. On Auburn's side of things, 
where I think they're probably in a little bit of a better spot. Obviously, when Auburn's been great on offense, go back the last few years, 2010, 2013, last year after the Clemson game, they've had a really good offensive line and they've had a really good ball carrier to, to be able to lean on. They leaned on Carrion Johnson. They leaned on Trey Mason. They leaned on Nick Marshall. They leaned on Cam Newton. They leaned on Mike Dyer. Well, we don't know who that really good ball carrier is this year. And obviously, Jared Stidham can't be one of those guys. It's just not who he is. So the offensive line is the other question mark. So do they even have enough up front to find out who that ball carrier is going to be with an opponent like Washington week one? Now, what I think they do is they probably are going to run the ball through the air, a lot of quick ball distribution, take, take advantage of Stidham's quick release, take advantage of his intermediate accuracy, which he has a lot of both, give him more control at the line of scrimmage where tempo and pace are not going to rattle him to where he has to look to the sideline to get a play. He can do what he wants to do. And when a quarterback's doing what he wants to do, he's going to be more comfortable doing it. He's been around enough college football to be able to make those decisions. So I think that's where, that, that's where Michigan and Auburn, those two teams sort of both have the inherent advantages. It, it's kind of, they're kind of an interesting comp because they're very different in what needs to happen and what they need to do. But they're also very the same in that, I think Auburn's front seven, Michigan's front seven, Michigan's overall defense, both the defensive coordinators. I mean, Kevin Steele and Don Brown neither get enough credit for how good they are. They both can lean on those defenses for most of the year, and those two defenses will keep them in most every game that they play this year. Auburn has a few more high-powered offenses on the schedule than Michigan does, but I think those two are going to be in a very similar boat this year, and how many they can actually win is going to depend on those adjustments if they're made and if they're not made and if they're executed properly on offense. How many teams do you think have a defensive line? Because uh, like Clemson is going to be the obviously the one that comes to mind. And I would love to hear if you if you've got anything particular because we've we've given a lot of lip service uh, to the talent, the ability, and the experience and the success. You know, this is a group that is still coming back from all these playoff runs, a national championship team. But is how many how many schools or coaches do you think are going into this season? feeling like maybe even on that Clemson level, on that Auburn level, on that Michigan level, knowing that your defensive line is good enough to keep you in almost every single ball game? I think there's a few out there. I mean, you're, you're right with Clemson. They're kind of the standard just because they have so many guys that have proven it, that have been there, that have done it. Um, it's hard not to see them as being a team that's going to be able to just wreck folks. Um, you know, I think Ohio State even Ohio State has some underrated losses on the D line and at linebacker that nobody's really talking about. But they're going to be a team who I think is obviously very difficult to deal with up front. We mentioned Michigan difficult to deal with up front. Alabama is going to be very different. Uh, yeah. Alabama may have the the most individually difficult player to deal with up front in Raekwon Davis. Like, listen, Ed Oliver's great. I, I, I'm not taking away from him. I'm not taking away from Jeffrey Simmons. I'm not taking away from Rashawn Gary but or Nick Bosa or any of them. But if you tell me the one dude that I wouldn't have wanted to play against, it's Raekwon Davis because there's not another guy that has that wingspan and that size hands that's that big that can keep that kind of leverage and beat you with, without really using his shoulder pads or his helmet. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun to watch. Problem with Raekwon Davis, he takes a few plays off every now and then, and that's going to have to change. Um, the Auburn defensive line is is just a group of studs. Marlon Davidson is a is a bigger, clunkier defensive end. He's not your you know he's not your your typical edge guy out there, but he plays the run well and he rushes the passer better than people think. Uh, you look at Dontavious Russell, who I think is sort of a 
Uh, he, he's one of those guys that, that just doesn't get a lot of credit. He does a lot of the dirty work. He's kind of a Dalvin Tomlinson in Alabama a few years ago. Not going to see a ton of sacks and tackles for loss, but that defense just doesn't go without him. He's kind of like, kind of like what John Atkins was at Georgia last year. Just he really allows a lot of other guys to do some things. And and Derek Brown has elite ability. I mean, Derek Brown has has top ten, top fifteen NFL draft potential to be that quick in that big of a body, move the way that he does with his flexibility. He's gonna he can be a guy that takes over games if he gets his motor where it needs to be and improves his technique a little bit. Mississippi State's going to be a lot of fun to watch. We all know about Jeffrey Simmons, who is basically a bigger, stronger, not as quick Ed Oliver, but then you put Montez Sweat across from him, who's the best edge rusher returning in the SEC, with Chauncey Gardner on the opposite side of him, who's going to be able to rush the passer and cause problems. And they actually have some real defensive tackle depth. So uh, those are all the lines that I think are going to be very difficult to deal with. I think if there's one out there that, that sort of sticks out that nobody's really talking about that could be interesting to watch by the end of the year, I would give you Texas A&M because I mm. think they got a couple of guys that have proven enough to me on the film. Uh, I've seen them do it. I've seen them be successful. I've seen them go out and get wins. But you got a high-motor guy in Landis Durham. you got Kingsley Kiki and Daylon Mack on the inside that provide you some depth at defensive tackle. Uh, Matabuke is another guy that can give you inside presence. And Michael Clemens, if he gets his foot right, which he's got a foot injury here in the fall, but, I mean, he could – Michael Clemens could be that breakout defensive player in the SEC type guy if he's healthy and gets a shot. And they got a really good group of linebackers behind him. So um, this D-line class top to bottom across college football, especially the interior group in the SEC. I mean, guys like we, – we haven't even mentioned – Rashard Lawrence at LSU, who I think is, is just an absolute stud. McTelvin Aguim at Arkansas is a stud. Benito Jones at Ole Miss is a stud. Georgia's still going to have a – Georgia's going to be good. I mean, Georgia's going to be different, but they're going to be good. Tyler Clark's going to have a huge year. DeAndre Walker and Johnson Ledbetter are going to have good years. They're solid. They're big. Florida's got a ton of dudes. I mean, Zuniga can rip it off the edge. C.C. Jefferson moves around. Kari Clark's a really good D tackle inside. Uh, you know, South Carolina has got DJ Wanham and Javon Kinlaw. It's like every group in this league has a dude on the inside. I mean, Missouri has got Terry Beckner. Uh, so I think outside of like Kentucky and maybe Vanderbilt and Tennessee, every SEC team has like a, a vicious guy on the interior of their defensive line that could all cause problems with these offenses that they're going to be playing this year. Top to bottom. I think not only in the SEC, but maybe nationally, probably a little void of legit edge rushers, but especially interior guys. This is one of the best interior D-line classes I've ever seen. I mean, just groups top to bottom. I'm not talking about draft-wise because some of these guys aren't going to be able to be drafted this year. But I mean, I, I played against, in one year, Gerard Warren at Florida, who was the number one overall pick, Marcus Stroud at Georgia, Richard Seymour at Georgia. They also had Charles Grant and Kendrell Bell. I played against Albert Means and Jarrett Johnson and Cornelius Griffin at Alabama. I mean, I, I played against some D-lines that had some legit dudes, Booger McFarlane and John Henderson at LSU and Tennessee. And I mean, I think this group kind of rivals those few years in the SEC when the D-lines were that dominant. That, you mentioned John Henderson, and that like that's the only comp I can really think of for Raekwon Davis a good like, one it's, and, yeah, it's, it's a really good one and I was th- like because I didn't I was surprised who you say that he was I didn't know from an offensive line perspective you're like oh man that guy's so long and 
and you know he's so tall and I can just get underneath his pads and and but you it sounds like you think like that link this makes it more difficult to deal with I, I guess it, the question I guess is is just what you know what is from an offensive line perspective like what is the toughest skill set to handle and 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 where does Raquan Davis sort of fit into that? It's, I mean, it, it can be both. Yeah. Um, now, the thing with Raquan is he has the length, but he understands how to use leverage. And yeah. I can remember seeing him two years ago. He'd come in late in games, and I'm like, this guy's going to get annihilated because he's going to have to take on double teams, and there's no way he's going to be able to stay low enough to make that happen. But he routinely does. And John Henderson's a great comp because he was another guy that played inside that was six six or taller that knew how to maintain that leverage and, and could use it and, and could use it against you. Richard was pretty tall. Richard Seymour, I mean, he was like a good yeah. six five and he understood yeah. pad level and leverage. But you get a guy like Booker McFarlane who is low to the ground and quick and big and strong like that. Those low leverage guys are difficult. I played against this nose guard at, at Idaho like the second game of my junior year, and he was a tilt nose, and he gave me fits. And you couldn't get your pads under him. You, yeah. just, you just couldn't. You know, and then you get, you get guys like Albert Means at, at Alabama, who nobody ever really talks about, but the guy was like an immovable force. Now, he was going to give you like four plays, and then he had to come out, but he was just so low to the ground and so heavy that you weren't going to move him, kind of a Terrence Cody type guy. So it, it, it kind of all depends on – the skill set that that individual has, and then how they use it. Can they take advantage of it? Because, I mean, if Max Stinchcomb was here, we could tell you funny stories about a dude that he practiced against, and Stinch would tell you that he wore him out in pass rush in practice. We're playing Georgia. Um, I think it was my my junior years when we won over there, so my sophomore year at home, and it's late in the game and we're up, and this little dude, number 96, comes in. His name is Josh Mallard. And he's probably 6'1", 255, 60 pounds. And I'm like, well, this is going to be a cakewalk. Well, they put him in a zero nose running a bare defense, which means both guards are also covered, so I have no double-team help, and he's shooting gaps one way or the other, no rhyme or reason. And you couldn't block him. He was just too damn quick. So it's, there are so many different types of guys. Like, like Jeffrey Simmons is a guy who – like, Jeffrey could run you over, but he can also sit there and take you on. Like, he's strong enough to do that. And Jeffrey's strong enough to take on a center and then have a guard come right at his hip and, and just sort of – you just bounce off of him. So, it, it, it's all just different techniques. Like, Dontavious Russell's a guy that you don't want to go against because you almost never see his shoulder pads uh, not square to the line of scrimmage. Like, he understands keeping his shoulder pads square to the line of scrimmage, keeping leverage, staying low, and – He's 310 pounds. He's a big, strong dude. So the most difficult part to deal with would, would probably be your guys who have that lower center of gravity, who are lower to the ground, that you just can't get leverage on, you can't get under. But Raekwon Davis is, is kind of an odd bird because that wingspan is something that you just don't see very often. You don't see yeah. a guy that can immediately put his hands on you and keep his body that far away from you. It's it's uncanny. So Different guys have different strengths, but it's the guys who understand how to utilize the physical traits that they have and and make them into their strengths. Cole, I, I could do this all day. We got to get you out of here eventually. I do want to ask you though before we leave, like there's, we talked a little bit about schemes and offensively and and the different kind of ways teams can be successful. I'm just curious from your perspective, 
if you or who when you watch a team on offense, who are you just like, man, I love what they do. Oh man, that's some good stuff. Or God, that what the way they block that. Or you know, what what's who are the teams that you really enjoy just from an offensive line perspective? Well, last year was Notre Dame, but that had to do with some of the individuals. But I still I still like their scheme. I if it if I had my way, I would be an inside zone team with that looked like a spread team with West Coast principles. And I think some of the closest teams to that that I see are Washington and Georgia. And, you know, they, they use heavy play action. They go RPO. They can go zone. And then they can throw in some G scheme. But the thing that I like about, you know, Chris Peterson and Jim Chaney is that they never – they can mix and match their run schemes better than anybody else in the country. And they go under center a lot, which, which I like. Um, which I, I think gives your quarterback different advantages and I, I think puts you in, in better spots at certain points in the game. I love what Wisconsin does. Fun to watch. Um, you know, I, I'd sit here and tell you that I like what Michigan's been doing and I like what Arkansas did a few years ago, but I think we've all come to the realization that that's only going to get you so far. So you're, you're going to have to be more balanced and, and change things up and move things around a little bit. But the Georgia offense, the Washington offense, the Wisconsin offense, those are – those are offenses I really like to watch. Alabama was cool to watch last year. I thought I thought Mike Loxley's influence, and you'll see more of it this year, of mixing and matching the run game. Like Alabama did a lot of quarterback read stuff last year. It's one of the reasons that I actually liked Jalen Hurts in that offense last year is they did they would change they would take a play like a zone read play or read option, and they would change the guy that they read, but they would keep the blocking scheme all the same except for one guy. So they would all of a sudden. The quarterback would be reading the opposite defensive end, but the play looks exactly the same. Or they would turn a three technique loose, and the quarterback's reading an interior defensive lineman. And if he's coming up field, and that determines whether he gives the ball or not, as opposed to the defensive end. Yeah. Well, linebackers don't know how to play that because they haven't seen it, and other defensive linemen don't know how to play it because they hadn't seen it. So the way Brent Key and and Brian Dayball and Mike Loxley, and I think it was mostly Key and Loxley were the ones responsible for it last year. Dayball would even tell you that. That was cool to watch because they they mixed and matched things and it's kind of it's it's frustrating to hear you know Alabama just beat you with talent they have more guys and Jimmy's and Joes but they out schemed a lot of folks last year they really did it, it was it was pretty cool to watch. Do you get anything when you're when you sit down with coaches for production meetings? Is it just uh, is is that almost a joy to just start breaking it down and, and telling a coach like, hey, he, this is what I'm this is what I'm seeing, and then they start giving. Do they give you little nuggets there that uh, that help you, of course, with your broadcast? Yeah, you get some cool stuff, and, and it, it's I mean, it's relationship driven, just like anything else in life. So, the better relationship you have with that coach, the, the more they're going to be willing to give you, or the better information they're going to be willing to give you. So, it it, it, it all depends at certain points in times, but. Yeah, especially when, when they know that, that you know what you're talking about or, or they're surprised that you saw something that they've done. And right. That's why I like being on the crew with Jordan Rogers because he, he kind of sees a lot of the same things that I do and he sees some things that I don't do and I see some, some things that he doesn't see. So, But when we both get in there and start talking, it's, uh, it can turn into a, a really fun conversation. He is Cole Kubelik. You can follow him on Twitter at Cole Kubelik. He's of ESPN, as we just mentioned, on the SEC Network broadcast. Cole, uh, this this has been so much fun. I hope we get to do it again. Thank you so much for your time. Anytime, guys. Glad to help out with everything.